for it is good. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, your word is a light for us, for our feet and upon the path you would have us walk. You give it to us to set us right, to gain our attention in the midst of life, to warn and admonish, to encourage and comfort. And yet these words will just sit on this page. They will go in one ear and out the other, unless by your spirit you do a great work in the hearts of these who hear my voice. And so bless the preaching, bless greatly the hearing, bless powerfully the using, the applying, the remembering of this psalm and all of your word. To the glory of the name of your Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, imagine if, if you had done this. Young man comes to you, and you know him. He's one of the priests. And he comes to tell you that he watched his father murdered, sl- slayed along with all of the rest of his family and all of the rest of the cohorts that had been a part of the priesthood in Nob, your hometown, the place that you had been. And you've come to tell this person because it's because of the things that he said that your entire family has been, has been wiped out and then your city has been wiped out as well. Men, women, and children, we're told, have been killed. Now imagine you're the person being told that. You're David. What do you say to that person? What do, you, what do you say? Well, that's what this psalm is all about. That's what, this, this is how David answers this situation. In a world of evil and darkness, in a world where um, your words have been twisted, and not only twisted to, to ruin, ruin you, ruin your reputation, but to ruin and slay others, you're now going to answer to this young man who watched his father murdered. Psalms are, are songs, and they're written for the people of God to sing in various circumstances, in the most joyful of circumstances and in the deepest and darkest of circumstances. And the memorializing of these psalms or of these instances are used by God to learn from and then to use in our own circumstances, or the circumstances of our time, of our day, of our age, to, to learn how to speak about the evil in this world, and how to, how to discuss it, think about it in light of God's sovereignty over all of it. The events inspiring this psalm are they're quite a bit earlier than the psalm we looked at last, last week. Psalm 51 takes place quite a bit into David's reign, when he sins with Bathsheba. This is at the time where, um, it, for, for all of David's faithfulness to Saul, for all of his kindnesses to Saul, and for all of the victory that he's brought forth for Saul's kingdom, Saul hates him. Saul's envious of, his, of, of all the people's um, lauding of, of David, loving of David. And he's decided as the spirit has left him and he's been now, um, he, he's being bothered by these evil spirits. He's decided he is going to kill David. And David, through a message that re- he receives from Jonathan, knows that he's got to flee. But this information is not yet public. It's not out to the general nation yet at this time. So David had fled from Saul and, was, and, and Saul 
was seeking to find him and to kill him. David comes to the city of Nob where he receives bread. He re- receives actually the showbread from Abiathar, the priest there, who normally would not give the showbread, but, but David convinces him that he is on a mission for the king and he needs the bread for he and, his, and, and the followers. He doesn't have, he, he, he's fled and he doesn't even have any weapons with him and he notices there Goliath's sword and he asks for that. And Abiathar, believing that he is, he is simply providing for one of the king's servants, gladly gives the, the sword to David. While that happens, we're told in that scripture that Doeg, an Edomite, an Edomite, not, not a Jew, and, so, and who was Saul's chief of the herdsmen. So he's a... a, a, a um, man of renown amongst Saul's, uh, Saul's servants. And, and the scriptures record that he was there and witnessed what took place. Later on, because uh, uh, we know that after this, it, this doesn't happen immediately, because later on David goes uh, to Gath, um, and, and then after that he ends up with his people hiding in the cave of Adullam. So some time goes by, we don't know how much time, but after some time, we, we find Saul, who has heard that David is, is out there in the wilderness somewhere, and, and he's bemoaning, he's actually feeling sorry for himself because of this persecution that he believes he is under by his own people and by David. 1 Samuel 22, 8, this is, this is what he says. Saul says, all of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And Doeg sees his opportunity. Now is the time to give this tidbit of information. Doeg says, no, I know where where David is. I I know what's happened. Doeg saw his opportunity to gain the king's favor and told the king he had seen Ahimelech giving help to David. Saul then summons the priest, Ahimelech, who answered him bravely, had no idea that he had done anything then serve King Saul, and and says so. Uh, What I did, I I was doing on behalf of you and your kingdom. And yet, Ahimelech, in this envious hatred, of the love for David, says to his servants, kill him and all of the priests. And his own servants won't do it. We're not going to kill the anointed ones of God. So he turns to Doeg, the Edomite. He says, you kill him. Doeg takes out his sword and slays Ahimelech. And we are told he slays 85 unarmed priests, and then sacks the city of Nob, killing men, women, and children. Only one priest, we are told, and it is the son of Ahimelech, Abiathar, escaped. He ran back and he told David, who then put Abiathar under his care. And this story is recorded in 1 Samuel 21 22, if you want to take a look at that in more detail. In the scriptures, we have two responses from David. When he, when he first heard this horrible news, it's recorded in 1 Samuel 22, he said, I knew that day, Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. That's what he tells this young man, Abiathar. I'm, re- I'm responsible. I-, I knew when I saw Doeg that he would tell Saul. 
The other response is the psalm that we have before us this morning, a meditation on the kind of man that Doeg is, one who carves out his career by slander and intrigue. In the psalm, David contrasts the brevity of these types of worldly successes to the eternal goodness and victory of God and our necessary response to ourselves, trust our care to God in the same way that Abiathar fled to David and found refuge there. And so as you take a look at this psalm and you're trying to understand how do I enter into and meditate and consider this psalm, consider what David is doing. David is not, this is not a psalm of praise to God, although it ends with great praise to God and trust in God. It's as though you are listening and witnessing to David explain in song to Abiathar why he can still trust God, what's really going on. And if that's true, then what this psalm can teach us is how we are to turn and trust God when evil befalls us, when wickedness, not just wickedness takes, uh, takes place out there, but when it affects us, when it ruins some of us. Or we can think about how it may be ruining others in the world, in the wars that are going on, Christians in the midst of those, in, in those places. How do, you, how do you speak in such a way to these people that God is in control, that his vindication is, is coming and it is good? And so imagine David singing this song to Abiathar and to all who wonder at, at the seeming success of wickedness and even wickedness at our expense. So singing to and about the evil man or the evil men who think, him, who think themselves so highly and mighty, we have this boast in verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Speaking towards Doeg and maybe beyond Doeg to Saul, for Saul is the one who causes the, 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 uh, the killing of all of these um, priests. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. We have this great contrast as the setup of the psalm in verse 1. The empty boasting of evil men who think themselves so mighty and everlasting uh, and, uh, against the everlasting covenant loyalty and goodness of God. The goodness of God endures continually, he says there. And the word goodness is the same word we talked about last psalm in Psalm 51 that is, that is uh, translated there, the loving kindness, it's has said. It is the, it's the covenantal loyalty of God to his people. So the, the, the uh, distinction, the contrast that sets up this psalm is the boasting of the wicked man in his victory. In his victory versus the everlasting, loyal, covenant goodness of our God in apparent failure, in apparent loss. Where was God, Abiathar might say, to, to David after he says that first verse? What do you mean that the boasting of the evil mighty man is, I think he's saying it uh, um, sarcastically, oh, you mighty man with your sword, just killing 85 unarmed priests, big deal. Versus God who, who didn't save them, who didn't step in and make things right. And, and the contrast is, is immediately set so that we are then to understand how we are to see this world and the temporal things of this world 
as opposed to the eternal end, where the, where the story is going for everyone. Okay? So, in many parts of life's story, it appears that the wicked are winning. Maybe in general, in the world around us, maybe in specific circumstances we can think of. In, in many parts of our story, it appears that the wicked are winning. In fact, their murder, their rape, their pillage are real and costly. I can imagine David and Abiathar weeping together, weeping over the loss of friends, of, of loyal servants, of, of like-minded lovers of Yahweh with them. And where was God in all of this? Nevertheless, David wants to make it clear that it and they, the wickedness and the wicked men, are but vapor in time and space when compared to the enduring goodness of our victorious God. But we must see that and believe that. We must hold fast to that. The enduring goodness and covenant loyalty of our victorious God. We're to get a grip on eternity, in fact. We're to get a grip on eternity. A grip on God's goodness. They boast in evil because, why? Well, because of their evil hearts. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You like this. You live for this evil, Doeg. It's in your heart. It's who you are. Jesus would say in Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Where do these sins come from? They don't come from um, bad societies or evil societies or just the bad habits around you. They, they don't come because you didn't receive enough things and so um, out of your poverty you now turn into a sinful person. No, no, sin Sin comes from our sinful hearts. Out of the heart, Jesus says, proceeds evil thoughts and murders. And out of those hearts flow destructive words, he says. Words that are like a barber's razors deceitfully turned on your neck. You're to picture a western with a man who comes in thinking that things are safe to have a shave with one of those open razors. And as that razor is then taken to his neck, the deceitful and evil man slits the throat. That's what deceitful words are like. That's what the deceitful words of, of, um, of wicked and evil men who want to take you down are like. So sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not always true. That's not always true. It was the experience of Jesus and of Stephen and of Paul where words brought about deceitful ends as well. Matthew 26, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the councils sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Sharp as a razor's knife. Paul, when he is imprisoned, I'm sorry, Phil, uh, Phil, uh, Stephen, when, he is, when Stephen is, is brought before the authorities for having um, preached the gospel and, that, uh, and, and, and told uh, the authorities that they weren't following Moses, Acts chapter 6, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to the council. 
They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And the crowd is so stirred up that they take Stephen and stone him to death. Paul, when he's imprisoned. Acts 24, now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. They even bring in the, 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 the perfect orator who's going to be able to, with his smooth speech, convince, they hope, to have Paul killed. And then, of course, Ahimelech. Doeg twists the story. They, they not only do evil, they prefer it over good. See, that's, that's the thing to notice. It, it's, it's, it's not that they do it. They want to do it. They love the evil. I think we have to, and, and the next psalm is going to make us deal with this even more. We have to get over this idea that we have been taught in a world that we live in that man is basically good. That, you know, deep down inside, you find within yourself that man is basically good. No, man is basically evil. Man is basically wicked and bent and turned against God. This is the nature of fallen man, as Roman t- Romans tells us, Romans chapter 1. One commentator says, with regard to this whole psalm, he says, strikingly at odds with today's popular bias against demonizing the enemy, this psalm presents a simple but stark contrast between good and evil in which the bad guy really does appear quite bad. David doesn't try to dismiss the evil or the badness of Doeg. No, he's just, he is just at his core evil and wicked. Lying and false accusations are natural to them because they are of their father, the devil. That's what wicked men, that's where they're from. John eight forty four. Jesus says uh, to Pharisees, to religious types, to those who are seeking their, think they're seeking after God in their self-righteousness and imposing on others, Jesus says, you are, the, you are of your father, the devil. They, they say, um, Abraham is our father. And, and Jesus says, Abraham is not your father. If, you, if Abraham was your father, you'd have the works of Abraham. You'd look like Abraham. You don't look like Abraham. You look like your father. He says, you're of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources, from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. And you look just like your father, Jesus is making the point of. In the book of Revelation, when, um, when, when judgments are being called out, in, in Revelation chapter 12, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser, that's the devil, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And you can praise God for that because Satan, Satan no longer can accuse you before God, for anything you've done or thought or said, because the accuser has been set down, because Jesus stands interceding for you at the right hand of God. Do, do you realize that if you, if you get your head around that, you understand this, you, you need to understand, you probably feel worse about your sin, more guilty about your sins than God the Father does, because Jesus is standing there at the right hand of the Father saying, I died for that. The accusation comes and he says, that's paid for. That's paid for by, the blood, by, by my blood, Father. Do not listen to the accusations. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, that is, that, that is this wiped away uh, of all the transgressions, of all the accusations that could be made against you, but only because of Christ. In addition, with regard to those who are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, it is said in Revelation 22, but outside, outside the covenant, those who are not uh, covered by the blood of Christ, outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I I think this is, is, is fascinating. And scary to think that along and on the same list of murderers and adulterers and idolaters and sexually immoral are liars who love and practice a lie. Why? Because lies bring forth all these. Lies bring forth murders. Lies bring forth the, the ruin of other people's lives. Lies bring forth um, false um, a, a, a false righteousness in someone else. Because of their lie, they, they, it's not brought to the attention of, of why they really are living in darkness. Or, why, or, or a false accusation that puts someone else's reputation that they're living in darkness. And while this is the nature of fallen man and not the regenerate, it's, it's not our nature. The nature of lying has been removed from us so that in Ephesians, Paul would say, put off lying. Because you can now, because you're in Christ. If you put on Christ, you can now put off line and you can speak the truth and walk in the light. That is something you could not do. Because you couldn't openly confess your sin because you had to hide it. You had to lie about it. But you don't have to anymore. You can be honest before God the Father and as you are honest before God and the Father, you can be honest before anyone because there can be no accusation eternally. There can be no accusation against you anymore. And forgiveness is yours in in Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, Paul still has to tell believers, don't lie. You don't want to follow the old man anymore. You don't need to do that anymore. You've been set free from him. He's dead. You have a new life for you in Christ. So don't act like him. Don't play on that side of the team anymore. And so we're still warned, though, that the use of our tongue, the use of words, is powerful powerful, either one way or another, either for good or for evil. James would write, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison." With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness, in the similitude of God. The the tongue is something that must be tamed, and we can't tame it. The Holy Spirit tames it. The new man is able to tame it. But our old man, old nature, is not able to tame the tongue. And with it we can destroy people's reputations, we can destroy people's lives. And with it we can bless and encourage and uplift The same tongue can bless God and and then throw curses out the next day. It is something, words, words are very, very important things. Choose your words carefully, carefully. So, this is the nature of this man. In verse 5, God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living 
Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. And so next, David sings, I think, before Abiathar, before those who are, who, who are uh, struck by wickedness around them, David sings of what is going to happen to that mighty man who looks like he has won. He's reached the pinnacle of his career. He's in a position of power. He's, he's been able to take down all of the enemies around him, and he stands exalted by others around him. And we look and we say, what, what is going to happen? And God says, the, God says, let me sing to you the story of the destruction of the destroyers. The destruction of the destroyers. This is how all good stories go because this is how the story goes. This is, this is the story you always love. The story of um, someone's living in some situation in some town and some evil, some wicked, some enemy, some, some supervillain comes into the town and things go bad and people get hurt and then some savior needs to be raised up, some deliverer who's able to, who also has to, has to fight that one and, and then it's back and forth and there's twists and turns and then there's some left-handed, last-minute, 11th hour salvation that comes and we all whoop it up at the end because the story ends so perfectly as the destroyer is destroyed. We like those stories because they imitate the story. That's why you like those stories. Because they imitate the story. The the story that you're actually living in. Saul, who's the source of wickedness behind the murder of the priests, is, 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 is full of himself and in power. He is the king. But one day, he would be put down. And David the one that he sought to kill, to destroy, to ruin, so that his career would go well, is going to be the one who's going to take the throne. It's going to be a long and windy road for David. There are going to be lots of tosses and turns. There's going to be a lot of last-minute escapes. Why doesn't God just set him right on the throne? Why? There, there, are going to be, um, the, the, there are going to be those who are loyal to David who are going to lose their lives in the midst of it. Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and just put every, set everything right? Because that's not the story he's writing. That's not the story he's writing. And, and, And the reason that we think we want the story to go that way right now is because we do not have the mind of eternity. We we do not have the mind, like the psalmist says that we sang in Psalm 90, that there's 70 or 80 years here, but it's just vapor and it's end. This is not this is not everything. This is this is barely the first paragraph of the preface of the final story, of the whole thing, of the whole story when you're talking about eternity. This is just a taste of all that God is is doing. So Saul is going to lose to David, who's going to take his throne. Well, this story goes on all throughout Scripture. And maybe one of the pinnacles is, of course, Judas, who is the betrayer, who then along with all of the... um, all, all of the... Powerful, all of the strongholders, both Jew and Gentile in Jerusalem, are able to bring about the murder of Jesus. But they all one day would be cut off by Jesus, who's the son of David, same story, who would rise to his eternal throne. Try as they might, even murdering Christ on the cross only brought about the victory of his salvation. That was the great left-handed move by God. That was a great 11th hour work by God. 
So, all such stories occur because God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3, um, Colossians 1 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have been saved from that wickedness. And look, look with me at verse 5, because we, we see here how uh, complete is God's destruction. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. And then he says, Selah, stop and think about that for a moment. There's four verbs in this verse 5 that describe what God will do to Doeg along with all such wicked men. They are translated here as destroy and take away and pluck out and root out. But to study those verbs is to get a sense of the completeness of God's judgment. He is to destroy. He's going to destroy, which um, literally has this idea of, of pulling down and breaking then into pieces. To take away then is to take those pieces and to get out a strong broom and sweep them all away so they cannot be found at all. But wait, there might be a, there might be a few sticks still down there. And so they are plucked out by twisting and then rooted out. Rooted out and out, up and out of the land of the living. It's a complete destruction. It's a complete wiping out. It's a complete plowing up the whole land. It's all gone. God shall do this, and it's hard to make their coming desolation any clearer. So David is singing this to Abiathar's son. He's declaring to Abiathar what's going to, what, uh, to, uh, uh, to, um, to, to his son what is going to occur. When we are delivered... When we are delivered and when our enemies are put down, what are we told that we will see? The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh. <laughs> How do we do all those things? We are to see our eyes. There's, there's, there are going to be times, and occasionally there are times in this earth where we get a little taste of this. We'll talk about some of those stories. But what happens is we are going to see the, the, oh, look at how God just delivered. Look at how God just brought forth this great salvation. We're going to see, and we're going to fear. It will, it'll be an awestruck fear at the mighty wisdom and power and majesty of God in his, in his movements. And we will laugh. We will laugh with a great shout of relief. Like at the end of a battle, when you thought you were going to lose, and then some great hero has come in and took them all down. And with great relief, you realize that you've been saved. We've been brought out at this merciful victory of our God. Imagine, for instance, how Mordecai felt as he witnessed Haman hanging on the very gallows that Haman had constructed for Mordecai. You remember that story in Esther. Mordecai has all the power. I'm sorry. Haman has all the power to put Mordecai to death. And in just a turn of events, a short, minute turn of events, Haman ends up being placed on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Mordecai is saved. During Jesus' ministry, he warns unbelieving Israel of just such a judgment to come upon them in that generation for the crucifixion of the Messiah. We sometimes miss this, and I think the broad evangelical church totally misses this in terms of what's going on as Jesus is warning that if they don't believe, they're going to be a part of a great judgment that is going to come upon that city for the murder of the Messiah. 
It's going to look like you won, but I guarantee you, he says, you're coming down, all of you, the whole city, the whole temple. It's all coming down. So in Matthew 24, when they, when they come out of the temple, Jesus and his disciples, the disciples look with Jesus at the temple and they say, isn't this, isn't this glorious, this temple of God and this great glorious city? Um, it, it is said that as you, as you came out of the temple, you would, you would head east. And as you turned, turned the west and looked back on the city as the sun would come up, the gold-plated temple would, would shine brighter than the sun. It could blind you. It was, it was so full of glory. So that's what they're seeing as they walk out, this glorious temple. And Jesus says in, in Matthew 24, 2, he says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And he goes on to tell, they say, well, when are these things going to happen? When will, when will be the coming of the Son of Man in this judgment? And after telling them of the signs that they should watch for in their generation, he says in, in verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Which is exactly what happened. And this is why Psalm 2 speaks of such laughter at the betrayal of God's Son. Listen to the... Um, First few verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the Messiah, um, against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now, Peter will take, Peter will take this verse, this Psalm, and he will say, that is, that is referring to the Jews and the Gentiles, to Herod and Pontius Pilate, who conspired together to crucify the Messiah. And, and Peter will say, don't you remember what Jesus said? Don't you remember what Jesus said would happen? And don't you remember what the psalm said? It said, they're going to say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And then it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. This is not, this is not, the, this is not the laughter of just jovial like God is just so wicked and evil and, and he's going to laugh as, as a whole bunch of people are destroyed. No, this is the laughter of a savior over a savior who is coming at the last minute and saved the world. E even though the enemies tried their best to stop it. This is a laughter, a release of, of the victory of God over, um, over sin and death. But then he turns to those who had who had turned against Christ, who had plotted against the Messiah, who would not come to him in faith and say that he looks on them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And I'm sure that Jesus meditated upon that as he hung on the cross looking like a loser. That is why he was able to say, just before he, di he died, it is finished. In other words, we win. When it didn't look like we won at all. It didn't look like he won at all. But he saw the story. He knew the story. He wrote the story. And it's our story as well. 
So what happens? Well, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was the visible sign of the destroying, taking away, plucking out, and rooting out unbelieving Israel from the covenant. So take those those verbs from verse 5 again. Destroy you forever. Take you away. Pluck you out of your dwelling place. Uproot you from the land of the living. And that that describes Jerusalem 70 AD. Not a stone left upon another in Israel. Everyone either slaughtered or hauled off into slavery. And and the end, the absolute end of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant and its temple. Gone. Rooted out forever. This is exactly what the prophecies in, in Revelation are speaking of. Revelation 16, 5 through 7. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Now, now remember, when it, this is written, well, this prophecy is given when John has been put into exile, probably in the mid-60s. And as he's, as he's in exile... Many of the, many of, well, prophets have already been slaughtered by the people of Israel over the Old Testament period, but many of the apostles have already been martyred as well. Many of the apostles have already been martyred as well. And, and he says, but here's what they're singing up in heaven in the midst of all of these who have given their blood. He says, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. <laughs> Revelation eighteen twenty. rejoice over her, that is Babylon, spiritual Babylon, which is Jerusalem, the harlot, the one who has sold herself to the false gods and, and has betrayed Yahweh. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And then immediately following in in Revelation 19, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. The only time you'll find the word hallelujah in the New Testament. Over and over again, the the only time in 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 the New Testament is when the saints are rejoicing from heaven as they see the vindication and the destruction of those who had killed them and the prophets and the saints as God pours out his wrath upon unbelieving Israel. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. What does this mean? We understand, we, we're able to grasp more of Psalm 52 than, uh, than David could. But he, by faith, is able to say, God is going to destroy the wicked. He's going to put down those who stand against the saints of God. So Doag is a dead man walking. Saul is a dead man walking. And Israel, the nation of Israel, having put Jesus to death... Jesus would say, and John would record, was a dead people walking. They would be cut out. They would be removed from the vine. They would be removed from uh, being the covenant people of God. And for us, for the people of God, for the people of God in that day, it would be solemn laughter. Solemn, Solemn laughter. But it must be solemn laughter for us And Paul would give a warning to Gentiles who've been grafted into this vine now. 
A solemn warning because, for we must continue in faith and holiness, lest something worse befall us. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verses 19 and following. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. He's speaking to the Gentiles who are being, God is explaining that not all Israel is Israel. And unbelieving Israel has been cut out and cast in the fire of judgment. And, and, the, and the, the Israel as a covenant people are no longer a covenant people. They're, they're only grafted in like you're going, you were grafted in. And that is by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. There it is, to fear God as you see his righteous judgments. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness if you continue in his goodness, his covenant loyalty. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now he turns and praises God. Speaking, first of all, of of the godly, he says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it, and in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. This is why we must be like David, flourishing in the house of God. It is here that we flourish in the house of God. It is in the midst of God's covenant people. It is hearing his word and partaking of his sacraments and being in fellowship with one another and learning how to confess and forgive one another. It is learning how to be God's people in community where we find refuge and consolation and hope. And we're able to remind one another, as long as it is today, the author of Hebrews says, of the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, despite the persecutions that have come or are coming or will come. This is why we must be in the house of God, praising his name forever because of what he has done and waiting with all the saints together on God's name and all that name promises because it is good. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves means Jesus is our Savior. He saves. These lines, these lines here are much like the Psalm 1, where the godly man is contrasted to the ungodly, who is like chaff which the wind drives away. Once again, he says in Psalm 1 that we're like a tree planted in living waters, and we bear fruit in all seasons. John would use that to describe the church, the same idea at the end of, of Revelation where we would talk about the new Jerusalem, which is planted, which this, this temple, the people of God planted near the rivers of living water that spill out over all the world and, and, and bear fruit in all se- seasons, the trees along those. As opposed to the evil, he says, what are the evil like? What is the most mighty man, the most mighty, evil, wicked man who has the most control over all of this earth? What is he like? chaff that the wind can blow away. We have to get a grip on God's covenant faithfulness and loyalty to his people and his plan, his story for this earth. For this earth. We need to get a grip on the goodness and the the loyalty, the covenant loyalty has to God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So, Puritan 
commentator says, he was in the house of God, they were in the world. He was as a fruitful olive tree, they were as barren as unprofitable wood. He was to be daily more and more strengthened, established, settled, and increased. They were to be cast down, broken, swept away, and extirpated. And all this because he had trusted in the mercy of God, they in the abundance of their riches. Now, what this psalm does not promise, it does not promise that believers will always enjoy outward prosperity or will always succeed against the designs of the Doegs and Sauls and Judases of the world. This is an evil world. An evil world that God is reconciling to himself through Christ, but an evil world today nonetheless. What it does promise is that despite earthly trials... The man who delights in the Lord and in his house receives a life from heaven that enables him to abound in blessing in all seasons. What season are you in? What season are you in? George Horn would go on to say this. Listen, faith foresees salvation. Faith foresees salvation and anticipates the day of victory and triumph. In the meantime, while she waits patiently for its coming, she refreshes and comforts herself with frequent meditation on the virtue and power of that saving name, which is as ointment poured forth by fragrance of its odors, inviting and alluring innumerable converts to run after their beloved Redeemer. That's what faith does. Faith produces an aroma, a society, a people who who smell like victory over all of the evil. And become an alluring object to those outside in darkness. What is it that you have that I do not have? How are you able to rejoice and to walk in joy in the midst of that trouble, in that difficulty? What do you have? I want it. And time and again, it is the life of faithful Christians in the midst of affliction that God uses to bring others to the conviction of their own sin, to the realization of eternity, their need to be right with the Savior, with the Redeemer, and to come to him and cry for faith. So, one other commentator says this. He says, this is the blessed life, and any of us, any of us may have it. This is the blessed life, and any of us may have it. In any circumstance, in clear skies or dark, to the glory of God and in the power of his grace, we, uh, we gain this blessing by opening our hearts to God in prayer so that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We abound in knowing that sinners are justified and accepted by God through faith in Christ alone. For Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. That's the contrast of death and life. The destruction that is eternal and life that is eternal. That's what's set before you. It is set before you every Lord's Day in the gospel. It is set before you every Lord's Day at this table. Life and not death is set before you to turn. Not with promises that life is going to be easy. What season of life are you in? But whatever season of life you're in, no matter how dim and how dark, no matter how difficult, life is set before you. Eternal life is set before you. And we wait patiently. 
As Abiathar would, would have to wait patiently to see the end and the vindication of the death of his father and all of his friends and family in the destruction of Saul. Just as those who had watched the suffering Savior die on a cross would have to wait for that vindication to come in his resurrection from the dead, ascension into heaven, and then finally the destruction of all those who had put their Savior to death. And all of us will have to wait patiently as we wait for the final vindication for every wrong that has been done upon the face of the earth, all the tears that have been shed by the saints that are carried and kept in, in a jar by the Lord as we cry out to him for all things to be made right. Well, if, you've seen, if you see this psalm, if you see the stories, and you put yourself into the story which God has, has for you, then you see where this is going. And where it is going is the solemn laughter of the victory of God over every enemy. Every one of your enemies. Every enemy that has ever stood against the church and his faithful ones. He wins. He wins. And he wins over and over again. He wins in this left-handed way, in this way where it's the last minute, it's the 11th hour, but he wins. And when he wins, he vindicates for us all that we have. This is the blessed life. And like David, we are to learn to walk by faith and read the story you are in and sing that kind of psalm to somebody who is in a terrible state because of terrible things that have happened and befallen them. Even in the midst of their faithfulness before God. And so let's close together then in prayer. Almighty God, rain down your merciful comforts upon your children and bring your judgment upon this world. Convict the evil mighty men. Humble them and cause them to bow the knee to King Jesus. May they do so in faith as you have been so kind to grant to us. But may the world know that you, Almighty God, have all power and glory and majesty over and above any evil in this world. And the day of your vindication is at hand. May every man tremble at the name of Jesus in faithful fear and awe or in terrible fear of certain judgment. Strengthen your people with such psalms, with such words, with such glorious truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.